As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stand by. Three, two, one. Action. Assume... Nothing. Brash, bald-faced, blasphemy. Question everything. I find it extremely hard to imagine. Open your eyes. It is quite all right to be an atheist. The fastest growing group of people in the country has been measured as being those who have no belief or who are atheists. You don't have to be apologetic or quiet about it. Challenge the opposition. You see religion on a hundred fronts losing the argument. And start thinking. This is The Thinking Atheist Worldwide. It was last week on the show that I mentioned that I'm almost finished with it, but I've been watching this lecture series about the Black Death at the Great Courses Plus. It seems like such a heavy thing, right? It's like, I'm sorry, 
the plague, the Black Death, the, the death of almost 200 million people in Asia and Europe in the 14th century. You know, this is not exactly light stuff, but it is fascinating stuff. And it's, I think it's hard for us to process this here in the States, especially. I mean, think about the measles. Right? Less than 100 cases of the measles reported in 2016 in the United States, and it still made the news. Like, it was a huge thing. Imagine disease wiping out fully half of our population, okay? I mean, imagine how the world would change for us. Politics, religion, the economy, education, art, literature, the whole social structure, everything, everything would change. What people or ideas or institutions would die out and which would survive and even thrive. This is fascinating history. It's a lesson taught by Dr. Dorsey Armstrong at the Great Courses Plus. The lecture is called The Black Death, the World's Most Devastating Plague. It really is fascinating stuff. It's just one of over 10,000 lectures at the Great Courses Plus, streaming right to your TV, your computer, your laptop, or smartphone. Phone. I've got a special limited time deal just for you. Okay. A free month of unlimited access to all of the lectures at the Great Courses Plus. But to start your free month, you have to go to my special URL. So sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Seth. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Seth. Today's broadcast is called The Earthbound Parent. I actually borrowed the title with the permission of the author of a book by the same name. His name is Richard A. Kahn Jr. He's this guy who has traveled the world and done everything from teach chess to give a keynote address at the United Nations. Uh, he is somebody who has done a lot of living, and he was brought to my attention by Tracy Moody over at Friendly Atheist about the fact that he'd written this book on how to raise your children without religion. It seemed like something we'd want to talk about. Richard Kahn's going to join me in the last portion of the broadcast to talk about his own perspective. We're also going to get a lot of perspective from our listeners. I've got Sarah on the switchboard. Sarah, you're on the Thinking Atheist Radio podcast. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Talking about parenting. What do you think? Honestly, this is definitely an experience I had never seen myself getting into. And now that I'm into it, I mean, it's just insane, like the amount of information I'm able to see and the amount of things that are kind of being thrown at me from all different sides. What are some of the challenges you're facing as a mom? Definitely just the fact that because of how much of a broad range of information there is out there, and a lot of people are kind of just judging, it's like, oh, well, you're doing this this way, and you're supposed to be doing it this way, it's just gets a little bit overwhelming at times because you're trying to figure out, okay, this is what's right for me. This is what's right for my family and trying to stick to your guns and know that that's what's going to be best for you. Do you feel like it's advice that you should consider or is it just armchair quarterbacking and you wish everybody just sort of shut up? <laughs> Unfortunately, it depends on the situation. I've gotten both sides of the story on that one. Yeah. You got any uh, religious family trying to interfere? Hey, let's haul the kid off to church, that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I you... don't notice it so much from my side of the family, but I know with my husband's side, like, I mean, it was ongoing before my daughter was even born. I, I hear you're, uh, we've got an assistant in the background helping us with a call. That's awesome. That's cool. The more yeah. the merrier. So. Yep. Who are we listening to back there? That is my daughter, Lyra. She's sitting here trying to enjoy a bowl of cereal while I'm on the phone. That sounds good. What kind of cereal are we eating today? The one person Cheerios. Always good. Honey nut Cheerios or just regular? Just the regular. All right. All right. I've just had to check. Um, <laughs> How does it make you feel when mom and dad-in-law are trying to sort of co-parent? 
gets annoying because I, I think that kind of stems from the whole they know we're not religious, but they still kind of like nudge it in somehow. Like I know whenever my daughter was born, first visit into the hospital, they walk in with just this obnoxious doll that sat there and just creepily read off the Lord's Prayer. And it's just like, oh, thank you. We're going to put that away now. And hopefully you forget that you gave it to us. So like, a passive aggressive thing? Like, thing you th- yeah, probably. You got any strategies that are working for you that you'd want to share with the audience? Or? Honestly, at this rate, I know most of it at this rate, it's just a lot of me and my husband kind of just working together, trying to brainstorm and see what seems to be sticking for us. I know we're just kind of doing our own thing. And I know there's a lot of parents out there who probably would be doing different things or differently or whatever. And honestly, I'd be up for any input or anything. So so a show like this with a two-year-old would benefit you, you think, uh, some of yeah. the um, input hearing from other people, not done in a way where they're pounding on your door saying, hey, parent this way, but they're just giving sort of their own experiences. That benefits you? Yeah, I would feel so. All right, cool. Well, we're going to keep talking about it, and hopefully you'll find some nuggets of information, some resources that'll help you, okay? All right, sounds good. Teresa sent an email, and she said, Hey, Seth, I love that you're doing a show about parenting as an atheist. The birth of my oldest child actually led to my deconversion. I was raised in a fundamental evangelical household. We passed out chick tracks and proselytized in parking lots, the whole shebang. When I left home at 17, I stopped going to church and didn't think about God or religion much for nearly a decade. I identified as a Christian and habit only when my son was born. I realized I needed to figure out what I believed so I could raise him properly. By the time he was beginning to question beliefs of others, I knew I was an atheist. As for your question about how I raise my kids without indoctrination, here's my method. There are many books that contain maps of religious areas. I began the conversation by telling my son about all the different religions around the world and showing him that if he was born in Asia, he would likely worship Buddha, in the Middle East, Allah, and where we live, God, I think she means Yahweh, or Jesus. When he asked what I believe, I told him that we do not believe in any religion because it cannot provide empirical evidence to support its claims. When my kids ask questions about the universe, religion, or basically anything, we go through the scientific method and explore the question. They've watched shows like Cosmos, Bill Nye, Wild Kratz, and a host of other fantastic programming to hear other perspectives. When they've said they're atheists too, we discourage the labeling of themselves. We've told the kids that when they're old enough to do research on their own and form their own opinions without input from their parents... They can call themselves whatever they want. Obviously, we would not like it if they were religious, and I would feel like I failed at my job, but that we would love and support them no matter what. They're currently eight and nine years old. They currently think religion is stupid, but are respectful of others' beliefs. There have been bumps in the road, for example. My oldest believed in ghosts for a while, but I indulged him, and we tried to find evidence of ghosts without success. Belief or non-belief is a core component of who you are as a person. It influences so much of your person that my husband and I view this process as a long conversation that takes place over their entire childhood and perhaps beyond. Teresa, thank you very much for the message. Teresa mentioned that they use the scientific method with the kids. 
And this is something that comes up in the broadcast a lot, and we don't stop and say, well, what is the scientific method? So just real fast, I would encourage you, if you want to, to Google image search scientific method, because there are a lot of these cool graphics and posters, the kind of thing you can print off for your kids so that you know they have this visual reminder of how we approach the questions, the challenges, the opportunities before us. And just a very simplified version of the scientific method is it's a six-fold process. It starts with purpose. What am I trying to learn? Research, find out as much about the topic as we can. Hypothesis, we predict what the answer to the problem is. And then we experiment. We design a test to confirm or disprove the hypothesis. Analysis, record what happened during the experiment. And then finally, conclusion. Was my hypothesis correct or incorrect? The scientific method. And there are variations of this, but it's purpose, research, hypothesis, experiment, analysis, conclusion. It's a great resource for helping people, including ourselves, approach the questions that we face every single day. I've got Alana on the switchboard. You're on the Thinking Atheist radio podcast. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? Well, thank you very much for talking about earthbound parenting. How do we raise children, guide children, mentor children, inform children how to participate in society without programming them like little computers, like mini-me's? So tell me what you think. You got any opinions on this one? I do, and I don't know if they're the right ones. <laughs> well, but let's I hear it. I really think the more information they have, the better. And and I mean about religion and history and culture. And the more they learn about all different religions and history and culture, the more religion-proof they are. The harder it is to indoctrinate someone when they can say, oh, that sounds an awfully lot like this. And can I use my daughter as an example? Yeah, please do. Um, she's almost 13. And she has, I, look, she's an atheist. I mean, she thinks that she's a dragon. That's what she identifies as. But <laughs> I'm like 85% sure that this kid is a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, even though her father and I aren't. And she comes up with these things like her grandmother. Oh, it's nice that you think Jesus is the son of a god. Did you know that Thor is the son of a god, too? And... Little bits like that, that comparing different religions, it makes it really hard to take it serious. I would assume Grandma's taking it pretty seriously. Did she respond? How does, how does she take that? Oh, my in-laws, um, they are good people who really love their grandchildren, uh, but they are extremely religious. And we get chit-chat from them about raising our children godly, but I'm also, when the kids were very small, made it very clear that they can talk about God, but there would be no talk of hell and punishment for not believing what they believed. So they're frustrated, but they also love their grandkids, and I don't think they want to not see them. May I ask about you and your husband? Did I hear you that you're not atheists? Um, he, I, he was obviously raised very religious. I'm pretty sure he's agnostic. I don't ask him because I feel like I'm poking a bruise and I don't want him to feel like I disapprove if we don't agree. I'm kind of pagan in a way, I think. You think? I think. 
Well, help oh, me. Let's the... explore that. Okay. The practices of paganism, but you don't hold to a deity specifically? I do not. I do like some of the practices of paganism. I, I really like being mindful of of the progression of the year and of the environment. And there is something so very beautiful in the universe. But no, I don't believe in one specific God, whether it's any of them. So you're an atheist. I mean, I'm not trying to paint you with the word atheist, Alana, but if you are participating in a, in a structure, and I think structure, custom, tradition, ritual can be beautiful. Uh, it's like uh, those people who use even religious structure and tradition, but they don't hold to a deity. It has utility for them in helping to open up the world. It's just a nice lens to see things through, but they don't really hold to or believe in any specific deity. I totally get that. But if they don't believe in a God, you can imagine what a guy like me is thinking, Alana, right? You're an atheist and you don't want to say it. I, I'm, I didn't, I just, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? That's fair. It, it, uh, I very okay. well could be. You I, call yourself whatever you want. I'm just, you know, on this side, I was like, oh, doesn't believe in God or doesn't know. That sounds awfully familiar. I think you and I <laughs> might have that in common, Alana. We very well might. Tell me um, about paganism. I mean, it, it real, I don't want to digress too much, but it, may I ask how that's framed? What practices you like? Um, you know, I like the way the year is mapped out in this wheel, these increments, um, the Sabbaths. I, I, I like how every two months there's a built-in reason to reflect on what's going on in the earth around you and to take a moment and appreciate the beauty of it and to be mindful of the thoughts that you have. And yes, yeah, they frame it with spells and intentions, and but to be mindful of the intentions that you're putting out in the world, not to make the world a better place, but to make you a better person. What I'm most struck by, and I think that's fantastic, what I'm most struck by is that you didn't look at your child and go, okay, you're going to be pagan. You looked at your child and you were like, let's provide the child the tools and opportunities to figure it out. That's awesome. I kind of really feel that it's not my business in that particular area. Her, Her worldview is hers, not mine. And she needs to be the one that has to look at herself in the mirror when she's 20. And I don't want to pay for that therapy bill. <laughs> well, is, she, is she taking any crap from fellow students or friends for her skepticism? I, you know, I really don't think she has autism. So, I mean, and she's in seventh grade. So she takes crap and gives crap for a lot of different things. But I don't think that's one of them. I'm obviously a layperson when it comes to autism. Does the autism speak to the assimilation of information at all? She's high functioning. Uh, Before Asperger's was phased out, she was diagnosed with Asperger's. And it makes her a very literal person in all areas of her life. And the more information you give her, the more literal she gets. So in that sense, it's hard to instill that sense of belief and faith when she's looking at things so black and white. 
And a couple of years ago, this is how I kind of got into the paganism. She decided, Mom, I want to be a witch. All right. So we took her to the local temple of witchcraft, and we that's how we kind of delved into the wheel of the year and kind of all of these holidays because she wanted to be a witch. Then she got bored with it because she realized it was just like any other religion with no Harry Potter stuff. Although no, all the people who are witches are going to be emailing me over that line right there. Thanks, Solana, oh. for that one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have my Hufflepuff robes. I love Harry Potter. But for her, there was no magic to it. It just was just work. No, it was just religion. She doing okay these days? And how about you? We are doing okay. My son, who is 10 and also has autism, he's a different, he's, a, he's in a different boat. He doesn't. He's also very literal. He needs to put things in categories. You know, if you're not here, where are you? And when dealing with death, that's that's a comforting lie we had to tell him, that there is a heaven. And it's something I wanted to touch on because we dealt with my daughter very differently than we're dealing with my son. You felt he would not be able to process the idea of non-existence. Yes. He is cognitively delayed, so he, he isn't quite up to... Not cogn- He's mostly socially delayed now, but he did have a cognitive delay for a number of years. And um, he's not quite up to where a normal 10-year-old might be. And he has anxiety. So saying, yes, honey, mama went to heaven. Yes, honey, the cat went to heaven. It gives it an end point for him. It also prevents the possibility that he would be living his life completely overwhelmed with anxiety about losing yes. anyone and everyone and everything in his life. Yes, and that's our biggest thing with him right now is, you know, he lost some chickens last year. We just recently lost another cat. We live in the woods. It happens. And, um, oh, God, you're going to get emails for that, too. I'm sorry. No, not at all. Look, uh, we were we, we almost got chickens at our house, except they would have kicked my dogs' ass. My <laughs> dogs are too small. You know, my oh, dogs are so. My dogs are so small, they would have gotten their ass kicked by a chicken, so we just didn't, just didn't do okay, it. Okay, look, my dog is like 70 pounds. He gets his ass kicked by a chicken all the time. <laughs> um, um, well, I get it. I mean, I down the way, it's my hope that you'll be able to come to a point where that conversation could be had. But while some people are probably screaming at the radio, you know, I listen to that and I think you've determined how much he can and cannot process given his autism. And there's always the option when he is older and more able to handle it to say, some people think we go to heaven and to introduce the other mythologies to give him that choice later. But for now, that's where he is. And to anybody screaming at the radio, you've got my daughter. She's firmly, firmly in the atheist corner. I really believe that. You sound relieved, Alana, that she's not religious. Do I have that right, or am I reading you wrong? I'm relieved that she's comfortable enough to talk about what she believes and not feel like we will judge her for it. I feel like my job has been done. My daughter, for her, the first people she thinks of are me and her father. Who can you talk to? Mom and Dad. So that's what I am relieved about, that she can look at the world and and question and say, who am I? What am I? I am this. Mom, I want to be a witch. Okay, we'll do that. Mom, I believe in this. Mom, I don't believe in God. Mom, I want to be a dinosaur. And that she's comfortable enough to tell us who she is, even if that changes in a year. 
that's my relief. Awesome stuff, Alana. Well, thanks for talking to me on the show today and uh, sort of sharing your experience. Big hugs to the whole family from us, okay? Thank you so much. You have a good night. Of course, again, I've got Richard Kahn, the author of the book, The Earthbound Parent. He'll be joining me in just a bit to talk about this particular resource and to give us his perspective on parenting. But another author had come to mind. He's an atheist activist. He is one of the people behind the books, The Belief Book and The Book of Gods. And I thought it'd be great to have him as part of this conversation. David McAfee, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I love the idea of front-loading what kids learn about God with a capital G by including other gods with the lowercase g, right? Well, the best part about what you just said about the lowercase God versus the uppercase God is that God isn't really a proper noun. That God's name is Yahweh or maybe Elohim, and God has just become sort of a shorthand for uh, that deity. And so like you alluded to, people grow up, kids grow up thinking God equals this one deity. And so basically what I wanted to do with the belief book and the book of gods is distill what I learned as a religious studies major at UC Santa Barbara into something that kids could understand. And that includes learning about all the different deities, about religions that they probably haven't ever heard of. And so I feel like that's pretty important for their overall growth in terms of knowledge when it comes to religion. Do you find that some of the religious parents who've stumbled upon the book are threatened by it? Oh, definitely. Uh, a lot of people uh, have accused me of trying to indoctrinate kids. I ironically accuse me of trying to indoctrinate kids because uh, my book tries to teach them from a secular point of view. But I, I'm not saying gods aren't real or anything like that. I'm really just telling them what I learned in school. This God comes from this religion. This religion was created out of this area. This happened to this. And then encouraging them to ask questions from there. Does it make more sense that these things are all real? Or does it make more sense that people were telling stories and trying to explain the world around them? If a parent is listening, what's the age bracket that these are appropriate for? Uh, we usually say six to 6,000, just because anybody of any <laughs> age can really learn something from these. And I've had grown adults... 50, 60-year-old people come up to me and say that they learned a lot from these books because, like I said, it's information that I got in college from a religious studies degree, but a lot of people don't do that. And so uh, I feel like it's good for anyone above six. And then younger than that, you'll probably have to read it to them. But there are a lot of fun games and coloring uh, exercises in them as well. So it's good for pretty much any age. What gods do you cover? Give me some proper names. Man, uh, well, I, we cover basically all the different pantheons from Africa and from Greece. We even cover the flying spaghetti monster. We even cover deities that you probably haven't heard of. Uh, Bob Dobbs, we cover basically any god that you've heard of and then some more fun ones. And then we also have a little... Uh, area in the book, we have uh, sections in the book that allow kids to create their own gods and create their own religions. And basically, it, it allows them to understand what the, our ancestors went through when they created their deities and when they invented their stories. And in our newest version of this book, the third book, the Book of Religions, we are going to have that all culminate into them creating their own religion. And hopefully, uh, we encourage it to be a religion of peace and not a religion of violence or hostility. 
I'm trying to think of what mine were. What a great exercise that would have been as a kid. Like if you and I had had that, right? Oh man, I wish I did. I, I've read so many people send me screenshots and pictures of their kids' workbooks with uh, coloring and and with their gods created, and the kids create gods made out of ice cream and penguin gods and gods that let you eat. Uh, candy for breakfast, and they create all kinds of things. It's really, really awesome to see the imagination, the creativity that uh, we are showing them is how gods are created is basically really creative people trying to explain the world around them. Real fast, explain the belief book to me. The belief book is just basically, it's it's the basics of religion. It's where do beliefs come from? It's why did our ancient ancestors first start inventing these stories originally? Was it to control people? No, more likely it was because they didn't know where water came from, but it fell from the sky, so they assumed it was a god. They didn't know why grass grew from the ground or why why fruit and vegetables grew from the ground, but they knew they could eat it, so they thought it was from a god, and, and it basically started from there. I don't want to miss your co-author on that, so slug him real fast. Definitely, yeah. Chuck Harrison is working with me on all three of these books, and he did the illustrations as well as some of the writing. He helped me uh, put some of my language in kids speak because he has a son who I believe now is around eight years old. David McAfee, I'm going to include links for all of this in your website in the description box. I want this show to be just a list of resources at the end of the day, and yours will be among them. All success with the third book. You got a target published date for that sucker? Uh, Yeah, we're looking to get it out in mid-August. That's just around the corner. Yeah. Best wishes on that one, and uh, let us know when it happens. We'll get the word out, okay? Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Seth. Joining me next, I have Rich and Allison. You guys host the blog at coupleofatheists.com, dealing with relationships, family issues, that kind of thing, right? That's correct. When you're commenting about parenting, you are commenting as parents, correct? You want to set that up and give us some details? That's correct. Um, We do come at this as parents because Rich has two boys from his previous marriage who are 23 and 18. And then together we have a daughter who is three. And so we have a full range. That's quite a gap, isn't it? (laughs) It it is. (laughs) It's nice to see the range of issues you're going to experience. You know, we're not going into it completely blind with Arabella. Rich had a much more strict religious background than I did. So I'm kind of treating Arabella's education in the same way mine was, because my father is an atheist and my mother was a fair weather Catholic. So, you know, holidays and whenever my grandparents wanted us there. But my father just promoted it as another form of education. And that's what I want to do with Arabella is teach her different schools of thought, show her flaws in them and expose what makes them contradictory to the world that we live in. Are there specific books that you like or other resources? Um, We have several books, uh, children's books. Basically right now they're just Basically, it's science-based. Uh, Allison will read her stories at night about uh, space, which she loves. And dinosaurs, is right now, it's her new favorite. And, you know, just kind of keeping it fact-based. And and she's kind of picking up on that. So I think that'll give her a good foundation when she gets older. If we keep that going, she'll be able to challenge these other claims from a scientific standpoint instead of just mom or dad said. You guys going to do the... Um... Santa Claus thing or any of those? Or are you going to just skip all the uh, we, fiction and fantasy? We outright? haven't really done any Santa or Easter bunny. We do celebrate Christmas and Easter. But up until now, I mean, she's seen him at the mall a few times. But 
there has been no, you know, threat of gifts or not gifts dependent on if Santa is watching. There's that we're not handling it that way. As she gets older, you know, her friends discuss it and she wants to entertain the idea. I'll be open to discuss it with her, but I don't plan yeah, to asked. pretend to be yeah. Santa at any time. I really think that uh, most people never truly believe in the Easter Bunny because that's just completely frightening. Bunnies are terrifying for anybody who's seen Monty Python yes, as yeah. well, but that's a whole other... Um, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. So you deal with issues of life and death. I saw on your blog, you referenced the book called I Found a Dead Bird, The Kid's Guide to the Cycle of Life and Death. Yeah, I Found a Dead Bird is an amazing, amazing book for discussing the natural life cycle with your children. Right now, she's still very small, so she likes to hear about it likes to talk about it, but she can't completely grasp the concept. But I believe that children are never too young to you know, open up a dialogue with. As soon as she's able to communicate and let me know what she's curious about, I want to be there to address the issues. Any other tools, resources that you guys like for parenting? Um, well, personally, I, I've always found that the Dr. Seuss books are really good introduction to philosophy for children. So quite a bit of lessons in, in uh, some of those stories that we like to use. We all love Dr. Seuss, <laughs> but get more specific. What's in there that you like philosophically? Um, let's see. Well, there's the one with these sneeches, the star-bellied sneeches, for example. The ones without stars were looked down on by the ones who had stars. So a salesman comes into town with a machine that can put a star on their belly and you can look like the other ones. Well, now the other ones don't feel like they're special, so they go see the same guy who now has a machine that can take them off. Before long, everyone has bunches of stars all over them. And now they all start realizing, hey, this was just silly. You know, this just the difference is just a star. Meanwhile, then the guy who did the salesman made a ton of money and packs up and leaves. So <laughs> he cashed in on their prejudices about stars. So I read the other day that for all these years and decades, we've been saying his name wrong. I think it's actually pronounced Dr. Zoyce. It's a Bavarian name. And of course, the minute I read that, I thought my whole life is a lie. You know, <laughs> childhood is ruined. Like, it has to be Doctor Seuss. It can't be Doctor yeah, Seuss. It's always going to be Doctor Seuss. <laughs> I had someone at the top of the show asking about the possibility of homeschooling, and I'm not a fan of religious homeschooling, but I think in a secular capacity, with several caveats, I'm just fine with it. Do you have any positions uh, on this? Actually, it's funny you mention that because I did homeschool my oldest son. There were reasons, you know. Um, you know, he has social anxiety, those kind of things, but brilliant. I mean, the kid is so smart. He was reading philosophy at 14 on his own, bringing it home. So I had no problem homeschooling him. And, you know, as long as he was doing the work, I didn't have no problem with it. When it comes to the idea of homeschooling, as far as Arabella is concerned, she's our three-year-old. I would not uh, like to homeschool her if it be avoid, at all avoided. Um, I think that... Yeah. The social construct in school is really important. I want her to be exposed to diversity. I don't want her to be afraid to speak out and learn from what other people have to say. You know, I was in public school and I more than one time challenged what we were being taught and it you know, didn't always serve me well from a recess standpoint, but it you know, helped to shape who I am today and that I'm not afraid to question those around me, but that I'm also open to meeting new people and learning about them. Rich and Allison, I'll have everybody uh, check out your website, coupleofatheists.com. Thanks for sharing your perspective Thank today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having us.
Dr. Seuss, not Dr. Zeus, Dr. Seuss, one of the most beloved literary figures, perhaps cultural figures in human history, Dr. Seuss, and one of the great philosophers of all time. Congratulations, today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. You'll look up and down streets, look them over with care. About some you will say, I don't choose to go there. With your head full of brains and your shoes full of feet, you're too smart to go down any not-so-good streets. And you may not find any you'll want to go down. In that case, of course, you'll head straight out of town. It's opener there in the wide open air. Out there, things can happen and frequently do to people as brainy and footsie as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew. Just go right along You'll start happening, too. Oh, the places you'll go. Good old Dr. Seuss. On the switchboard, I've got Bob. Thanks for calling the show, Bob. What's going on in your world, my friend? Well, Seth, um, I thought your topic for this show, the secular parenting, uh, was kind of right in my wheelhouse, as I am am a parent here in in northeast Mississippi, uh, trying to do the right thing for, for three little boys, so... Uh, and I'm also a teacher as well, so I, I I interact with youth either in my in my own household or kind of in the in the grander scheme of things. I almost subtitled the broadcast. How do we not screw up our kids? Which is probably the underlying goal. Everybody's like, I don't need to be uber parent. I just don't want to screw up my child. So, as a parent and a teacher, where do you teach? By the way, don't tell me where. But is it elementary, high school, college? What? I teach at a community college level. Um, okay, cool. But I, but I also um, I help with my my oldest son has a robotics club at his elementary school, so I interact with elementary school age kids as well. That's kind of the point: is to how to encourage kids and to to use reason, to value science, to value technology in a culture where you know it's steeped in religiosity. You know that, that can be a bit of a challenge, and, and like you say, you don't want to screw up your kids. I like to say that there are no control runs in life. And so you know, it's always a, a balance that a parent is trying to strike between encouraging the values that the parent finds valuable, but also affording your child opportunities for socialization and such. And unfortunately, when you live in the Bible Belt, all too often socialization comes part and parcel or goes hand in hand with church attendance and youth groups and Wednesday night church and this and that. So, uh, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. Oh, in Mississippi, I can imagine almost every social structure is going to be, if not overtly religious, will be populated by religious people. Right, and that's that's why and that's kind of where you come into into the uh, into the conversation in, in my own life is that uh, several years ago, before my son was really ready for the summer camp experience, I was already thinking ahead about well, what's going to happen when he does get to be that age, and I wanted to send, want to send him to summer camp, and. Um, and the only opportunity is going to be church-based ones. Uh, and then I heard one of your shows, you know, I forget if it was the actual topic or if you were just mentioning a fundraiser for Camp Quest. And I immediately started looking into it. And at the time, the nearest one was actually, I think, in, in the Blue Ridge. It was, you know, a good ways away from my location. But I thought, well, Chuck, you know, when the time comes, even if I have to drive him that far, you know, I want my son to, 
to get the chance to have a dogma-free summer camp experience. And then as luck would have it last year, when he was about the right age, uh, Camp Quest expanded into northern Mississippi. We actually had Camp Quest Natchez Trace last year. And so not only did I sign him up, but um, <laughs> I tried to avoid being that Uber helicopter parent, but I also wanted to make sure that this project would succeed. And so I tried to help as much as I could. I wasn't an overnight counselor, but I did go up several times during that week. I, I do weather and astronomy presentations for kids. So I did a weather presentation for them. I did an astronomy presentation. We had a star night. You know, uh, he tried to provide some programming. I helped with the canoe trip. You know, you know it was a great week. He loved it. Uh, and I managed to stay out of his hair <laughs> successfully, <laughs> but also, you know, helped to help the project to move forward. And thankfully, you know, it's, it'll be back again in late June. And not only will my oldest return, but my middle son will be a first time camper. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's one thing I guess I would encourage. Well, give me some wisdom, Bob. I mean, give me your perspective. What kind of tools and tips and tricks are you using with your kids? Well, one thing that I try to do is, um, you know, expose them to science. And obviously my background is science. That makes it you know, very easy. But, you know, one of my nighttime, nighttime reading books for my kids, you know, The Magic of Reality by Richard Dawkins. Because, you know, it, it's all about, you know, what I love about it is that it just tackles a, a natural phenomenon what's a rainbow or, you know, how does lightning occur? And then gets into how people have tried to answer it in the past and what have been the explanations in previous civilizations. And then, you know, what is the best explanation that science currently has? And, uh, you know, I, I try to show that to, to my kids is that, you know, with, with anything, whether it's typically a you know, physical phenomenon, there are often be multiple explanations and, I like to kind of guide them through the critical thinking process about which would be the most likely explanation you know, of, among these explanations, which one is most likely. And so that's a good way of kind of teaching my, my kids critical thinking. Is it like a Socratic thing? I mean, you just put the ball in there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, and of course, you know, I don't live in, a, in an island or a bubble. Unfortunately, you know, I know your, your personal story, you've had a lot of upheaval, you know, and, and, pushback from family and that sort of thing. And that, that has occurred in my case as well. When I signed my, my son up for Camp Quest last year, we had a major falling out with family members. Is it because that they bought into the idea that this is atheist camp and not just like Correct. science camp? Correct. Right, right. They pestered me for a while. You know, I, They knew that my son was going to summer camp. And as the time got closer, they started to push me harder as far as, well, you know, what's the nature of this camp? And what's this all about? And I, I essentially would just tell him, oh, it's just summer camp. You know, he's going to be going, he's going to go canoeing and, you know, go. I didn't give him much more information because, frankly, it was none of their business. Where I send my child for summer camp is really up to me. But eventually they kept on pestering and they wanted a name. So I gave them the name of the camp. And of course, then they Googled that. And uh, what what the camp mission statement is, which is essentially, just, you know, this is a camp for free thought and exploration and emphasis on science, they read as atheist camp. And that immediately outed me. I was not out to them. And so that became quite an experience, uh, you know, going through that. So we are now more on, we're on the out. My boy still has communication with these relatives, but um, things have definitely changed. And so my, they've actually upped the religious instruction. When my, when my children do spend time with them, They've upped the ante. They, they've increased the 
religious instruction, the Bible stories, and this and that, which you know, is not the worst thing in the world. They, you know, they even before the fallout, they had been reading Bible stories to them. They had taken them to special services at their church and that sort of thing. And you know, for me, it's you know, I, I respect those boundaries. If I allow my children to spend time with them, you know, as long as they're not harming them physically, you know, what they want to expose them to is entirely up to them. Uh, it's actually provided me an opportunity to again teach critical thinking skills when I do when the boys do come home and you know I'll ask them you know, what, what what Bible story did you, you know, did you talk about and then we, we go through what I call the sniff test you know, they tell me a certain Bible story and I say okay well let's you know let's kind of go through this you know that story that you heard you know what's more likely do you think that actually happened or is it more likely that someone just wrote that that happened. Yeah, that's kind of the first step. We kind of just kind of break it down. And if they go in the direction of, well, yeah, that probably didn't happen, you know, whether it was a Abraham about to kill Isaac or you know, any of the other Bible stories, David killing Goliath, that sort of thing. You know, then I say, well, if someone if someone just wrote it, if it was just a story, you know, why did the author write that? What was the motivation? You know, why would you write a story like that? And then I keep on drilling down. You know, is there a lesson to be learned from this story? And is that lesson you know, consistent with how the world works or how the world should work. And again, continue to drill down. Then if they say, well, gosh, you know, no, it's not really consistent. Then I tell, well, then you know, is there any value to teaching it to impressionable children? You know, and that, that's kind of the process. You know, it's, a lot of these stories are to be culturally literate. You should know these different characters, but, you know, it's much like Shakespeare. You, you should know who Othello is and you should know who Hamlet is. But when you're exposed to that in English class, they don't tell you, you know, they, they, the teacher doesn't force you to believe that these were real people and these things really happened. You know, whereas quite often religious stories are presented as fact, as truth to children. And uh, I'm very sensitive when it comes to that as far as, you know, you know it's very important what you expose children to, or what, you know, especially as a, as a person of authority, whether it's a parent, whether it's a teacher or a preacher, or a police officer, uh, you know, children, you know, if it comes from an authority figure, they take that as truth. And so you know, I think it's very important that the adults in this world really become self-reflective as far as you know, what are they teaching children? What are they teaching as truth to children? Because quite often what the child takes in, it's really tough to get out. It was the philosopher Daniel Dennett, I think, who said that, you know, parents don't own their children. They are stewards and we need to be good stewards. I'm guessing, but just to finish up here, I'm guessing you may have a sixth sense of humor like myself. Like there's a part of me that if I saw a religious objection to Camp Quest would want to immediately go into Photoshop and like mock up the poster, you know, Camp Quest, Come canoe the rivers of blood. Join us as we sing campfire songs to the dark. Lord. Only 15% of the children will be eaten. You know, we could do something like that and just say, hey, check out this great spot. Uh, right, well, it's right. nice to meet an educator, my friend. Any final thoughts before I move on? Any exclamation point on the sentence? Well, I, you know, I, one thing I liked in, I think, your last, last week's talk was um, – you know, you spoke to a guy about secular Mormonism, and I like the way he—you know—he's very positive and optimistic at the end, and that's kind of the way I view it. it. You know, it sometimes can feel like a battle, can sometimes feel like you're a very small, small fish in a big pond of religiosity. Um, but you know, in my mind, I'm, I'm just trying to find constructive ways of pushing rationality, pushing critical thinking. Uh, yeah, not only with, on, with my own children, but also you know, in my teaching. You know, I, I've found myself trying to teach critical thinking skills 
to my students more and more. Um, you know, quite often, especially when it comes to conspiracy theories, you know, uh, you know how, how how do you approach you know a conspiracy theory? How do you dissect it and think about the possible explanations uh, and which one should have more weight and which one should not have more weight? So, I, I found this all very um, freeing, liberating, and, and intellectually challenging to work in a positive way against the forces of dogma. Bob, thanks again for the call. Really good stuff. We'll pass it on and uh, see what the other listeners have to say. Okay. Thanks for all your good work, Seth. Short break. When I come back, I'm going to talk to author Richard Kahn Jr. He's the author of the book, The Earthbound Parent, How and Why to Raise Your Little Angels Without Religion. It's going to be an interesting conversation. We'll have it right after this. Thanks so much to my sponsors for supporting this broadcast, and thanks to my patrons for their support as well. And if you enjoy the show, you want to support the show and its host, and you'd like a commercial-free version of the broadcast and a bonus show just for you every month, log on to patreon.com slash Seth Andrews, and you can decide the amount of support you would like to give. And thank you so very much. It was brought to my attention by a friend... Tracy Moody, who was over at Friendly Atheist, that there was a book that was uh, about parenting, secular parenting, how to raise thinkers, how to teach children how to think instead of what to think. And it was authored by a gentleman named Richard Kahn. Well, I'll admit I hadn't heard of Richard Kahn before, and and I'm so delighted that he's joining us on the radio today. Uh, when I heard you were an attorney, Richard, you know, I did have a moment of pause. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that happens often, you know. Oh, great. He's a lawyer. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure you've you've gone through the litany of lawyer jokes and all the other stuff. But uh, talk to me about your background. Give the audience a quick biography, who you are, where you've been, what you're doing, okay? Well, I've recovered from the attorney phase. I was an equity partner with one of the big firms, Latham & Watkins, for many years. Uh, But I've recovered. But just imagine going through life, you know, at least the early stages as an attorney with a last name, Khan. Extremely. Difficult. Oh, I hadn't even made the connection. <laughs> yes, C O N works wonders. That's better uh, than Dewey Cheatham and How. I think that's better than exactly. the partnership. Yeah. Uh, but no, in a in a nutshell, uh, you know, I I I do two basic things. One is I run Eurasia Advisors, which is a leading problem solving group that deals with U.S. Russian relations. I had opened up the operations of Latham in Moscow back in the 90s. And I'd actually ended up being really the primary advisor to the Yeltsin team, President Yeltsin's team, and working on reform in Russia. And I'd really gone over there largely to you know be involved in that and try to make a you know, productive contribution. I, I spoke Russian prior to going over, and I obviously speak fluent Russian. But also, uh, I run a, a firm called Innovate Partners, which is a, uh, a late-stage venture capital firm and so we have various companies in, in California, uh, which, uh, which we build and, and sell on behalf of ourselves and of our investors. And in addition, I'm very active in the chess world, uh, not just uh, on boards promoting chess uh, for, uh, as part of the educational process. Uh, I'm part of a group called 
uh, first move, which has now taught chess to 1.3 million second and third graders in the U.S. public schools. Uh, but also I represent and do work with several of the past world chess champions, uh, currently with Magnus Carlsen in the past with Gary Kasparov and Anatoly Karpov. And I ran to be the deputy president of the World Chess Federation. So I've been involved in a lot of different international activities during my life, uh, often uh, along the axis of Russia-U.S., uh, but these things tend to be political, they're involved with problem solving, dispute resolution, and that really is what led me in my youth to be thinking about the role of religion in making it uh, far more difficult to resolve problems in the world. Have you been a rationalist your whole life or have you not been religious your whole life? Well, uh, certainly from the point where I was allowed to express my views, yes. Uh, you know, I was raised Presbyterian but not overly so. And so I, I had chances to debate issues with what were called ministers at the time. And so from a fairly early age, you know, maybe by 10, 11, you know, I, I had really come to the conclusion that this was, you know, with due respect to others, uh, really what I would view as nonsense. And, uh, uh, and so I did not, you know, was able not to become confirmed. Uh, but then it wasn't until my teen years that I started to write down some of my thoughts, you know, which eventually over the course of 40 years, I guess you would say, became a book very gradually. So you weren't indoctrinated and then spent the next several decades being pissed off about all the time you wasted. I mean, I just want to get that out front, right? I mean, you, you sort of had the latitude at an earlier age to determine what was true and to challenge ideas, correct? I did. You know, I was, it certainly took some thought and, and, and involved some stress to reject what I was being taught at that early age, but it all seems so patently illogical to me. And the ministers were, you know, to some degree, I wouldn't say candid about it because of course they would take the detour over to the concept of faith, but they, they at least were nonviolent. And, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, it was sort of a happy little lie kind yeah, of a thing, perhaps. Yeah, and so they, they, see, they certainly seemed to recognize the inconsistencies. So I felt relatively comfortable at an early age, as I mentioned, not being confirmed and, uh, and starting down my own path. But again, I was ra raised in a society, you know, this is some years ago, back in the 70s in particular, 60s, when everyone around me was quite religious. So it, it, it had its challenges. I think a lot of people who are atheists, they're non-religious anyway, raising children, they carry this fear that they will even inadvertently do to their children what a religious parent does to their, a fundamentalist parent might. And I can speak to that by being raised in fundamentalism. We were taught this is the truth with a capital T. It is irrefutable. Don't walk away from it under penalty of hell, right? And uh, they told us on the surface we could ask questions, but they didn't really mean it. They meant we could ask questions, but only if the answer came back as this, right? And so here we are on the other side of the looking glass, right? We're atheists right. and we're thinking, how do I tool the kids up without infecting them with so much of me that it becomes belief by osmosis? Can you want to start by addressing some of that? Sure. Well, you know, First, in my own, my own personal case, and uh, with my first wife as well as with my current second wife and raising two children with each, we really didn't have to worry too much about that because uh, we, we all were really fairly far down the path of atheism. And so we were not, for example, taking the easy out 
when we wanted to discipline our children or to supplement, you know, the, if you will, the strength of our authority over them by invoking gods, you know, to, to make the punishment worse or to make our authority stronger. Uh, my first wife, though, was Catholic, and so I had to have discussions with her about that, and, and we agreed we weren't going to go down that road. Uh, Let me stop you there, Richard, for just a second. That seems like kind of a sticky conversation. She's probably, does she carry in a measure of Catholic guilt? Does she believe in a literal hell? <laughs> and as parents, are you, are, you know, are, are two universes warring against each other there with the kids in the middle? Well, there's always some of that, I think, in every marriage, right, when you're raising kids, because, you know, parents love their children so much, they, they'll fight for every little inch of influence that they think matters to make the child better. And so, if you're slightly religious, certainly, you know, I understand why parents would try to pass that along if they think that's helpful. But in uh, my first wife's case, no, she, uh, you know, we, we went to see the Monsignor when we were going to get married uh, because she wanted a Catholic wedding. And and after he went through, you know, some nonsense over the course of half an hour, she herself basically looked at me and I could tell she was thinking, <laughs> this is ridiculous. We're not, we're not going to endure this. She was a highly educated woman, Harvard Law, Stanford Business. And, you know, there's just a point at which I think rationality wins out. And uh, we never really had to, to battle, or, if you will, for the, quote, souls of the children. The book itself then provides what to parents and potential parents when it comes to raising earthbound children? The book is designed to, number one, help parents who want a full picture of, of the intellectual framework for raising children without religion in, in a, a religious society for, you know, why they should go about doing that and how to go about doing that. So that's one category. It's also uh, meant to be, and I believe is, an extremely persuasive argument uh, that is not designed to ridicule someone who has some religious feelings or some spiritual feelings but rather to help them see elements that we all share, particularly psychological elements we all share, that drive us towards religion and help you know, help a reader think through with me uh, the process of perhaps seeing why they should at the very least hold some of these concepts uh, you know, in some serious level of doubt. Uh, and then to start to see the benefits to children of raising them as critical thinkers rather than as uh, again, with due respect to religious people, what I refer to in the book as delusional thinking. Uh, that's the dichotomy that I think uh, is is really one that a, a parent needs to choose if they're going to go down the path of religion. Uh, that obviously would be, in my view, embracing delusional thought, at least at some level. And I, I do think there are deleterious effects of that that are uh, visible both in society as well as in a family. You talk a little bit in the book about security, about the illusion of control. If a parent is trying to assure the child, and we've heard the narrative of everything happens for a reason with a capital R, or perhaps you can even in a supernatural way manifest some kind of power or control over this earth. Um, it is a way for many parents to assure their children and to perhaps empower their kids. But you believe this is detrimental. Yes, I, I do. I think, you know, look, again, in raising four kids, Seth, uh, I certainly understand the need for a parent, you know, particularly in the early years, to give the sense that that you as a parent, you know, are a stable force, that 
that you've got this basically and that a child is safe with you that you're confident about what you're teaching them and how you're raising them and that they they come away with a sense of self that's very secure um i guess i would put it this way i don't lie to my children and i believe it's very important for the parental relationship to be one based on a sense of integrity so i would never want them to find when they suddenly reach age eight or ten or twelve that some of the most important things that I've taught them are actually false. And so it would be for that reason I would urge a parent who's thinking of passing along a myth to a child as true, you know, are, are you going to try to maintain that during the entire you know, period of your relationship? Or are you going to at some point indicate it's false? And if it is, you know, fundamentally false somewhere in your mind, what's the effect of having passed along to them something that really is not based on integrity? So I think it's a very weak foundation, and that's why I would urge people to avoid utilizing that as the basic part of of the worldview that a child adopts. So would you take a child to church, but make it more of a forensic exercise? Like, we're going to go see what this denomination thinks and believes and practices, and next week we're going to go check this denomination out. Do you do some of that? Well, I, I don't uh, at all, uh, and I encourage parents in the book uh, not to do that. I, I think the right time, you know, to expose children to, you know, a religion or, or give them choices of religion is about the same time they can choose between, you know, the monetarist theories of economics, the Keynesian school, and some others, so, or perhaps more in the day-to-day choosing a political party. Uh, I, I don't think that exposing children to these myths is a particularly helpful part of childhood. I think as they get older, it is part of a normal education to be aware of the different strains within society and different, uh, certainly belief systems are part of that. Nationalism is part of that. There are a lot of different uh, concepts that children need to be exposed to, but I, I don't feel any need to uh, have them feel the group identification that comes from going to a church or a synagogue or a mosque or whatever. I, I do see very harmful things that come from that type of group thinking. So even framing it as a myth, then, you think it might be detrimental at too young an age for a child. You want them to have the experience and the depth to be able to process the information with greater maturity. Am I framing that correctly? You, you are, Seth. I mean, that, that's how I've done it with all of my children and, they, and the older ones, you know, are at an age now where they've thanked me for that. But I, you know, I can understand how in some communities people feel a need, and I address this in the book, to be perceived as participating in that community. And, and in that instance, I, I would focus the children on the idea that, that you know, that the parent, if, if it's true, that the parent disagrees with the concept of a supernatural force or a God, if you will, but might uh, feel comfortable with some of the cultural elements that a specific uh, uh, group of people tend to adopt. So, I, you know, you can draw those lines, but I wouldn't go looking for it. I, I, I'm of the view you can build very, very healthy lives and relationships for your children without uh, the exposure to these different uh, uh, religious sects, if you want to call them that, at an early age. I, I don't think it's a particularly useful, useful uh, educational tool, and there's a lot more to do with kids. And to expose them to than that, which I think is you know, generally just sort of a waste of time. I'm reminded of that quote by uh, Christopher Hitchens from God is Not Great, where he said, if religious instruction were not allowed until the child had attained the age of reason, 
we would be living in a quite different world. That probably lines up with your philosophy there. but It really does, yeah. It does. If I can play devil's advocate, though, there is a little bit of a forbidden fruit aspect. If you cordon off all of these faiths, especially in a place like the United States, where Christianity or even a casual, let's call it an armchair Christianity, people don't know anything about their Bible, but they are Christian kind of thing. If it's everywhere, their friends are Christian, they see Christian churches— but they're not introduced to what Christianity is, is there a forbidden fruit aspect where they then become more desperate to learn? I don't know how one would mitigate that. I'm just tossing it out there. Sure. Well, well, first off, it depends on the community. And as I mentioned, I, I certainly do cover uh, in a Q&A section in the back of the book and some other areas that, that people do need to take into account the reality of their community. Uh, certainly, I don't want someone who's living in uh, Islamabad, whatever, you know, to... Uh, to face, you know, violence for, uh, for, for not participating at least at some level in religious rituals. Uh, as I joke in the book, you know, we don't need any martyrs to atheism. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think as to your main point, Seth, I, I don't, I've not found in raising my children that there, that this issue comes up in the way you're describing it. Mm. it. It may be in part that, that we're just not surrounded by people who are, discussing religious concepts frequently, uh, it, it frankly, this does not surface as a normal conversation point. I don't pick books to read to them that have major religious themes. Certainly they hear the words, God, you know, God, whatever they hear about different, uh, figures in religion, but they don't process these things as part of a, uh, a supernatural belief system at a certain age, you know, at least with my older children, they started asking questions and I would respond directly and honestly to them and, you know, tell them about the different concepts that people believe. Uh, but by that age, it, it, they're so far along the road of thinking for themselves, being critical thinkers, that I, I, I don't think they ever felt any of this forbidden fruit concept. And I, and certainly if a child of mine ever said to me, gee, somebody at school invited me to the Mormon church and I really want to go, you know, I, I would discuss it with them, but I certainly wouldn't forbid them or get in their way. I would just view it as an opportunity for them to learn something new. I wouldn't throw them to the wolves either. I mean, I, it's yeah. weird. I'm, I'm arguing for the sake of discussion. I, you right. and I line up. I, yeah. I would rather see my child spend a day doing something meaningful than going from temple to mosque to church to sanctuary, doing a forensic examination of various denominations. I think they need to understand how and why religious operations work. What's that line that says, if you teach a child one religion, you indoctrinate them. If you teach them all religions, you inoculate them. I agree with that, right? Knowledge is power. They'll be able to see the similarities and realize that they're all sort of operating with much of the same mythological framework. But I'm not the thinking atheist host saying, take your kids to church. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. I, I guess uh, what I'm thinking is, you know, to me, this is these concepts of being exposed to religion at some point in life, or at least the, you know, these, these different faiths, to me, is such a small category of knowledge that there's so much for a child to learn that has far greater value that I really put this as a really tiny area in terms of, of education. I certainly want them to be aware and they are, you know, that people have different religions and stuff in our country and in the world, but uh, learning different philosophies is far more important, I would say, than just, you know, looking, looking at the supernatural elements of religion. If you sort of think of religions absent the deities as types of philosophies, 
There are countless philosophers that one needs to learn uh, in addition to what I view as fairly simplistic religions. The title of your book, The Earthbound Parent, How and Why to Raise Your Little Angels Without Religion. Is there a model or template that you use to proactively educate a child rooted in the real world? Yes, I, there is. If you want to think of it that way, I, uh, I spend a fair amount of time late in the book discussing how to raise children this way. And I, I do actually believe there's a lot of value for religious families in reading these sections of the book, because I, I think many of these concepts w- w- people would agree with, regardless of their religious perspectives. And so for just as an example of that, um, you know, I'm a fan of, uh, of educating children well, exposing them to all types of different activities, whether, you know, it's uh, in my case of my daughter's ballet and musical instruments and languages. I have a lot in there about hiring, you know, about involving people in life to help your children learn languages when they're younger. And then importantly, limiting, if not elim- eliminating uh, the role of television in the early years of a child's life and having parents look at themselves as responsible for the influences that a child you know, receives during the early years and avoiding the pattern that we have, frankly, uh, particularly in the United States now, of uh, families just gathering around and watching television constantly. I, I use the point that you know, if Seth, if you and I were, you know, uh, walking our children down the street at age three and a stranger came up to us and said, hey, you know, do you mind if I talk to your daughter for a moment? You might say, OK, you know, because you're right there. Uh, how would you feel if that person said, you know, I'd like to have 20 minutes just alone, you know, with your child over here just to talk to them on my own? Any parent, I think, would react with shock at that concept. But most of us don't equate that with what happens when we turn on televisions. And maybe we think we have some control over the programming. But what about the commercials? It's very strange to me that we as parents in the United States in particular don't uh, think of regulating that activity in a very, very severe way. Uh, And instead setting up patterns for children where they look at the interaction with their parents as one of conversation, common learning, common experiences, as I said, musically or with languages or uh, with reading, uh, sports, whatever those things are. Uh, But it starts with parents looking at themselves and saying, you know, do I want to be a great parent? Do I want to be active with my children? Or do I myself just sort of want to be passive and and turn that all off and let let somebody else basically be the the force of influence in my child's life? Would you substitute smartphone technology, tablets, other types of technology for television in that instance as well? Well, I guess when you say substitute, I, I do mention when I use the word TV in the book that it, it, it includes okay. those technologies. Yes, you, you okay. certainly have to update that for where we are today. And, and if someone's reading the book in 20 years, there'll be new technologies that are what I'll call vicarious experiences for children that I don't and or out of you know, out of the real world experiences, meaning their own lives. I think those are, you know, fundamentally unhealthy things. And I simply point out, these are all new inventions, including television. We as parents should at least consider what role we want those to have in our lives. I'm not suggesting an Amish lifestyle, (laughs) far far from it. But what we do, for example, is, you know, we will choose things off the internet 
that we want our children to see. And so we're, we're very careful about what that is. And, you know, we'll have, for example, with our kids, we'll have Mandarin movies, we'll have Mandarin, uh, you know, lessons, then there's Russian, then there's some Spanish, then there's French. And for kids, it's all play. This is the beauty of it. You know, if you, I don't know if you had kids, Seth, or not, but the young kids, they don't think of this as work. This is all just fun for them. They're singing songs, they're dancing. And all it takes is parents making the decision that, oh, I can do this for my child. Why don't I do it? Instead of just, you know, letting the TV run and seeing what happens. Well, I mean, I don't have children of my own. I was a child. I'm trying to think <laughs> in my own life, hey, kids, it's time to learn Mandarin. I'm trying to see exactly how what my response would be to that. <laughs> what, would you, what would your response have been, Seth, if you'd had an au pair, let's say, or an, an aunt who spoke Mandarin and just from age one was playing with you with a ball and singing songs with you? You know, keep in mind, learning a language is not studying a language. It's the way we learn language is just by interaction. So what kids do, and mine learn several, they just associate specific people with the language. And it's the easiest thing in the world for them. They, they don't, they're not studying the language. It's nothing like that. It's just the same way you learned English. And by the way, I found, uh, I did a survey recently, and of all the billion, I guess, what, almost two billion people that live in China, uh, not one of them has had any difficulty learning their native tongue. That's a joke. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I think I address this more with lament. I think about all the <laughs> useless crap that I learned when I was a kid, all the time I wasted. Right. And I think of it from the other side. All the years I wasted learning the languages I learned as an adult. You know, that that was yeah. a huge time investment that I, I would have enjoyed doing other things uh, a bit more. Do you uh, see spanking as child abuse? I do. I, I don't. Uh, I, I I understand there were writings from very well-meaning folks, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, that would uh, suggest, for example, having a paddle or whatever that's a third, you know, a, a distant object that a parent can refer to and say, you know, if you don't behave, I'm going to have to get the paddle or whatever, and they can use it that way and not paddle. Um, and uh, uh, I took the view in the book that let's keep it simple because I think um, – and, and I think you may find this, you know, if and when you have kids, Seth, uh, you know, parenting is really hard and we're all imperfect. We all have tempers. We all get tired. I think it's just far easier to draw a clean line and just say to yourself, you know, I don't I don't need to get physical with my children ever. And if you draw that line, you're going to find that it works. Uh, I've, I've never had to do that with my kids. Timeouts, you know, even a um, even just saying to a child when they're young, honey, I'm, I really would rather you do this. They are so eager for your approval as a parent, you know, because you are the God in their lives, uh, that it, it takes nothing to get them to, if you will, uh, seek your approval. So if they sense that you're unhappy with them for not sharing with a child, with their, with your sister or whatever, all you have to say is, honey, you know, I, I sure would appreciate if you would do this. Now, as they get older, maybe you need more and timeouts come in. I remember with, with my, you know, really young ones that, you know, even a one second timeout, putting them in the corner for literally a second was more than sufficient. Uh, I, I just think parents, you know, really can do a tremendous amount on the discipline side 
just by planning it out in advance and knowing how they're going to handle different situations as the children become a little bit older. And that's why I find it a little bit comical, although sadly so, that there are parents in the world that think that they not only need violence, if you will, but they need to invoke you know, the, the threats of, as you were saying, burning in hell and all these, all these things, you know, it, it's just, uh, yeah, you it, don't want to disappoint God. You don't want to disappoint right. God. They, they're just not utilizing the relationship they have with their own child. The desire for the child for parental approval is the most powerful force in a child's life, at least until the teen years when they start getting into the rebellious mode, uh, you know, where you need more, more advanced techniques. You had addressed a narrative in the church, don't ever spank the child with your bare hand. You right. need a third-party object. You need a spoon oh. or a paddle or a switch, <laughs> and then it becomes okay because it's not you physically hurting or touching the child kind of thing. Well, look, again, I, you know, human nature is such that uh, I, I just think that if, if parents give themselves that license, they're going to use it. And as I said, we all have tempers, and it's it's you know part to, in my mind of what civilization is about is controlling oneself. And I'm really arguing in the book, certainly in this particular area, that good parenting begins with controlling yourself as a parent in lots of different ways, not just this one, but also as I mentioned in terms of how you structure your own household and you know how you interact with your own children, what you say to your children, you know what you teach them, how you structure their time. It, it requires a lot of thought. But then you run into the, well, I was spanked plenty when I was a kid, and I turned out fine. How would you address that? Well, I'd probably ask the first question, uh, you know, did you enjoy that experience? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you want to replicate that? Uh, so, you know, if the answer is yes, I'm, I'm into sadomasochism, and I want to give that gift to my child, okay. Uh, look, I, I want to be very clear about one thing, Seth. Uh I am not in this book telling any parent what to do. And I, I, don't, I don't view that as my, as my role in life. I don't even tell my children what to do. Uh, I don't think advice, if you will, in that context is a helpful thing. I think it's patronizing. What I am basically is sharing some ideas, some thoughts, and letting people, of course, make their own decisions. Parents love their kids. And I think that's why they would read a book like this, because they want to learn as much as they can to be the best parents they can. And they may adopt some ideas, they may reject them. Is the earthbound parent targeted to um, people who are religiously well-versed or come out of a religious background, or is it a broad spectrum of people? I mean, I, I, who would I give this to? I, I mean, quite seriously, it's really, it's really geared to virtually anybody, but okay. I'm sure the publisher and others feel that folks who are lightly religious or haven't really thought much about it would be the the ones who would find it easiest to uh, embrace, you know, all of it. But I, I think it's, it is not, number one, it's not just for parents. Uh, it's not just for prospective parents. I think the presentation of these concepts uh, would be extremely helpful virtually for anybody, whether they're religious or non-religious. I, I don't think you can read something like this without it having an effect on how you view your your world narrative. That's what I designed the book to do, to make it very accessible to everyone, very persuasive, and to really come at it from the perspective that we are, as I mentioned, all in this together. How can we you know, come to some agreement on some elements, and how can we avoid, at the very least, 
taking religious concepts to the point where people become violent? And, and how can we look at, at terrorism in a manner that allows us to address its foundations by discussing the role of religion, uh, even if we ourselves are in a religious society? Uh, so it's, it's a book that is, believe me, far more than a parenting guide. I have to ask the question, did you use any chess analogies in the book since you're, you know, you've got a <laughs> deep background in chess? I, I didn't use analogies, but there is a section of the book where I'm discussing some different ways of educating your child and things to teach your child, giving examples. And I run through such things as using riddles and, lo and logic problems to teach critical thinking and to help children learn to question their uh, assumptions. And there is certainly a, a small section where I discuss the benefits of chess because, yes, since I'm so involved in that uh, I, I, and have some respect, if you will, for what it teaches you, inclu including, by the way, humility, <laughs> because you lose a lot and you make a lot of mistakes. I, I do feel that that's one of many different skill sets that a parent can consider giving to the child. And I give some specific thoughts about how to go about uh, teaching chess, not yourself, but involving uh, whether the internet and, and how to go about utilizing that to help a child develop some self-confidence and also to relate to classmates. Uh, it's, it's really quite a tool, which my youngest daughter has embraced. She's now the champion of her state for two years in, a, uh, uh, in, in her age group. Uh, but I would also add there are not many children playing against her. So it's not the it's not the loftiest title, but she, you know, she is so proud of herself in having these trophies in her room. It started when she was age seven. She won her first tournament. And just the, the experience of going with me and sitting on my lap and, you know, telling me about the games, you know, there's, there's a bonding that's really wonderful for parent and child in that experience. Uh, so whether it's chess or something else, I, I really encourage parents to think about those types of bonding experiences. Your daughter's playing chess at a young age. At that age, I was blowing up Star Trek models with M80s in the driveway. I just look at a study in con. It's a study in contrast, is what that is. Well, and I and I was and I was watching Star Trek. You know, I, 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 I the TV was my parent for many years. Absolutely, so it's understandable. You know, I mean, we live busy lives. It's easy to sort of find a point of focus and say, "Here, go do this." And then we can get on with the rest of whatever we need to accomplish or finish or that whatever is, fire has to be put out. That is a common way of looking at it. And, and most of us have parents like that. But I'm really saying, you know, the parents who choose to read the book and those if they read it, they're probably pretty good parents to start with. I, I'm really saying that, you know, parents miss the best part of life if they don't engage with their children in these ways. And I really do believe that it's so much fun and it's so far superior to going out to the bar or just hanging out with buddies, you know, there's time for that too. But the magical years of raising a child are, you know, irreplaceable. And it, so I give parents a lot of ideas in the book of, of how to do this. And, and again, not telling them what to do, but giving them tools, uh, resources, websites, everything that you may need to really think through, uh, you know, what to do with your child. Because most parents have no clue. They're not taught that in school. You know, you suddenly have a baby and you're scared and you're, you're trying to figure out how to keep it alive, keep your job, all the other things. So it is useful, I think, just on that level. So you, you can take from the book what you wish, whether it's the philosophy 
or the practical tips of raising great, successful children that, uh, you know, that have the capacity to think for themselves. Richard Kahn, the author of The Earthbound Parent, How and Why to Raise Your Little Angels Without Religion. I will link to that book for purchase in the description box of this broadcast so you can go and check it out for yourself. Richard Kahn, it's been a real joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure, Seth. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. Watch dozens of original videos on The Thinking Atheist YouTube channel. And visit our website for resources, links, contact information, the editor's blog, and more. TheThinkingAtheist.com As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.